0: It's wonderful to be back here with you. My name is, uh, as Eldon said, is John Harris. I think this is the third time I've been here. And uh, for those of you uh, who I haven't had the opportunity of meeting, this is my lovely wife, Debbie. And we are the proud parents of three adult kids and six grandchildren. And now we can be nuisances to our own kids and try to spoil our grandkids. Yeah. Well... Let me ask you a question as we start this incredible passage, Acts 2. Acts 2 that we have just read is Peter's first sermon. It's one of 19 sermons in the book of Acts. Kind of makes me feel pretty good as a preacher. And uh, beside the theme of addresses and uh, expositions of God's word in the book of Acts, we also find uh, the theme of the Holy Spirit. Anybody know how many chapters there are in the book of Acts? It's just so great to see kids here. So kids, uh, let's, let's all uh, participate together. How many chapters in the book of Acts? 28. And do you know that the Holy Spirit figures very prominently in 24 of those 28? And the chapter we're going to look at this morning is no exception. But let me ask you another question. Have you ever had a hinge experience in your life. I don't mean that you became unhinged. What do we mean by that? A, hinged ex- a hinge experience or hinge time is what historians call a time in history where there's an inflection point where, as, a, as the name uh, assumes, a door changes. A, there's a change in direction in history, an unbelievable difference where from now on nothing is the same. If I were to say 9-11, would you know, do you remember where you were, those of you who were alive back then, where you were when you heard that news? Yeah. If I were to say JFK assassination, maybe there's some of you that can remember that. Doubt if any of you can remember Pearl Harbor attacked by the Japanese Air Force. These are hinges in history that define sometimes a whole generation, define a whole era. Many uh, social observers, philosophers, historians believe that right now, at this time, not just the pandemic, but overall, we as 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 a world are in a hinge time. Think of how the destructive powers of our technologies that we have, uh, that we have developed since 1945, and, um, and, and think of how the trend line of the destructive power of our technology has gone up. But then, using the graph analogy, think of how the change in human wisdom has, uh, has, has manifested itself. Is the change in human wisdom keeping up with our destructive technologies? No. Now, some would even argue, I was chatting with uh, Eldon before, some would even argue that the, uh, just the craziness of the instant feedback of the social media is, is actually driving, driving us nuts and making reasoned social discourse impossible. Well, we can ponder all of these events And we can ponder their significance, but one thing that is not up for debate is that the inhabitants and visitors to Jerusalem, about A.D. 30, in this great Feast of Weeks, uh, which was about 50 days after another great feast. What was the great feast that uh, the Feast of Weeks came after, kids? Do you know? Great Jewish feast. Passover, this 50-day period between Passover when Jesus was crucified and resurrected and 50 days later when the Spirit came at Pentecost. Those 50 days represent with the death, with the resurrection, with the ascension of Jesus into heaven and with him pouring out the Holy Spirit on all flesh represent the greatest hinge event, I'll uh, get this, not just in the history of the world, but if you read your scriptures closely, and I know there's some really, really uh, uh, serious studiers of the word here among us today. If you read it really closely, it's a hinge event, not just in the history of the world, but believe it or not, in the whole area of the heavenlies. And so we're talking about it's a linchpin uh, event here. Well, last week, uh, you learned about uh, the outpouring of the Spirit, the beginning of, uh, of Pentecost. And uh, you, uh, you remember that uh, 40 days after Jesus was rose, rose from the dead, he actually uh, told, well, he didn't just tell, he commanded his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. So they did. And uh, 10 days later, in this Feast of Weeks, where in Jerusalem we have thousands and thousands of people from all over the empire, Jews, proselytes, in this busy, busy time, suddenly the Spirit comes and is poured out on 120 of the first disciples with powerful, visible signs and also audible signs. I wonder. I wonder what Pentecost looked like. Have you ever thought about that? Like, did did, did the, God send the Holy Spirit to appear as this big, huge ball of uh, of fire? Uh, the Bible describes God as a consuming fire, and when God came down on Mount Sinai, He came with this incredible fire and power that shook the whole mountain. Certainly. The, 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 the fire of, uh, that appeared over the 120 was a manifestation of that. But did this big big ball of fire appear and then these little flames shoot out to the 120? Kind of like a divide, like a split-screen TV? I don't know. But what we do know is that after this rushing wind came, after the Holy Spirit was poured out on the 120, they screamed out of the house and began to speak... Do you remember? In other languages, there was, as I said, people from all over the empire, and the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to declare the amazing, wonderful works of God in the languages of all of the visitors. Well, what was the response? There were three basic responses. There was the positive side of the uh, continuum. Some um, were astonished and amazed then as we move more to the negative side, uh, another group was bewildered, confused. What is this? How can these Hicktown guys from uh, way up in Galilee, you know, the wrong side of the tracks, uneducated, speak with such power and force in our own languages? Well, How did these uneducated bumpkins get this ability? And then even further to the negative side, there was a group that were just cynical, sour, cynical people that said, (laughs) it's obvious, they're drunk, they're boozed up, they're groggy. I just want to point out that when God reveals himself in spectacular displays of power, there will always be some who will, be, who will move towards God, and there will always be some who when they see that power will become hardened, even more hardened. What did Jesus say? If a person rises from the dead, they will not believe. But, uh, but this picks us up now at our text. And this is, our text begins, and last week uh, we saw the event of Pentecost. This week... We're going to look at the interpretation of Pentecost. Because it's not just a question of what God does in history. It's not just a question of God's activities and his clear signs of power. It also is a question of how we interpret that. And both are crucial. So Peter stands up and he uh, uh, stands up with the 11 other apostles. He gets their attention. He lifts up his voice. Well, he certainly had to lift up his voice. Can any, any of you remember how many people came to the Lord that day at the end of his sermon? 3,000! Okay, I'm just going to assume that not everybody was saved. We don't know, we're not told. But if we use the, the uh, parable of the sowers, where there's how many different kinds of, of soils, kids? Four kinds of sor- soils. So let's just assume that, you know, a quarter uh, accepted, accepted the Lord and, and became saved that day. So let's assume a crowd of 12,000 people. Well, he certainly had to lift up his voice, and the power that would have to come from, from his lungs almost certainly would be helped by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he gets their attention, and he begins preaching his first sermon. He starts right where the people are, and he addresses the, the question and the sneering of the cynics, saying, they can't be drunk, it's only the third hour. Anybody know what time the third hour was in Jewish culture? It started at what time, when it, was, when, it, when it was ground zero for the beginning of the day? It was six in the morning. So the third hour would be nine o'clock in the morning. If you know Jewish culture, there was no eating, there was no drinking, it was absolutely incomprehensible that anyone would be drunk by that time. Unfortunately, in our society, that may not be the case. So what does he do? They are not drunk, as you suppose. What you Jews, he says, are seeing from all over the empire, what you are seeing right before your eyes in plain sight, is nothing less than the prophecy of Joel. He takes them back to explain this event, To the Old Testament and he says in verse 16 follow with me but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel and in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh so why these signs they show that this moment is a dividing point in history it's a hinge it's a line in the sand And this is proof, these incredible outpourings of the Holy Spirit and manifestations. (laughs) This manifestation of the Holy Spirit is unprecedented, and now there is something that is changing everything. And what I hope to show you in the next few minutes are three implications Three lessons that we learn from this, of Peter's first sermon. And these lessons are not just um, important, but they are crucial, crucial for your lives as members, as ministry partners in a church, and your relationship with God. Number one. When the Spirit is poured out, What does that mean? He has been poured out, using the astonishing word, all. He has been poured out on all flesh. Wait a sec. John, you're using very uh, strong language here. Why is all such an astonishing word? Well, if you know your Bible, you know that this is new. Let's provide a little context. Did the Holy Spirit operate in the Old Testament? Yes, the Holy Spirit was very, very uh, prominent in the Old Testament, but it was different. The Holy Spirit was selective in who he empowered, and it was usually transient. Can you name me some of the people in the uh, Old Testament who were empowered by the Holy Spirit? Elijah, absolutely. David, yes. Who else? Oh, so Samson, yes, Samson, kids. Whoa, when the Holy Spirit came upon Samson, he could take a lion and rip it to shreds. <laughs> and what about, uh, what about uh, Ezekiel? This is one of the most impressive visions. God showed Ezekiel a whole field with the bones of apparently a dead army. Bones bleached in the sun, dead bones. Who knows how long they had been there? And God said to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, prophesy to those bones. Now, has anyone here lost a loved one recently? That's very, very tough. But can you you imagine? I lost my mother about um, a year ago. Can you imagine going to a graveyard and being told to prophesy to these bones? But that's what God told Ezekiel to do. And you know what happened. As he prophesied, it says, "...he prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone, and I looked, and the tendons and flesh appeared on them, and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them." So suddenly the bones get the sinews, the muscles, the skin, but they're still corpses lying on the ground, strewn about on the battlefield. And then God continues, he says, prophesy to the breath. Was Ezekiel the agent behind this incredible spectacle? No. Ezekiel's prophecy was no more than a tool. Nevertheless, God chose Ezekiel to be used by God. He chooses us to unleash the power of the Holy Spirit using the prophetic utterance of mortal, fragile sons and daughters of Adam and Eve's dust. So he says, prophesy, son of man. This is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. This vast army that just a few moments ago was bones was now resurrected, and the breath of the Spirit of, of the God from the four winds was the power, and the prophecy of Ezekiel was the channel that God used. So what's this got to do with Acts 2? Hmm, a lot. Because as God explains the meaning of that vision, he says that this is a sign that God is going to restore life. He's going to restore life to the nation Israel in the form of exiled captives coming back. But the point is is that this was nothing more than a limited outpouring of the Holy Spirit for a specific people, the nation of Israel, at that time. But when we come to Acts 2, verse 17, as Peter begins his sermon, this Pente- Pentecost inaugurates a profound change. Now, as the same breath from the four winds to which Ezekiel pros- pros- prophesied, the same wind which Jesus talked to Nicodemus about in John 3, remember what he said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. That same breath that the Holy Spirit now breathes on his church in Acts chapter 2. It's a a breath, it's a breathing with such a force that we are told it was a mighty rushing wind, like a gale force, a hurricane power, is to be poured not on the odd prophet, not on the odd soldier, not on the odd king in the Old Testament, but what? On all flesh. And this is a fundamental change. This is a hinge of history. And when that happens, gifts come along. And people uh, and come and fall on people. And this is where things get really exciting for the church. So let's go back to this verse. It says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit, on all flesh, but there's more. When that spirit is poured out, the status, I want you to notice this, the status that we like to build in society to make some people more important than others, people higher up the hierarchy here, the slaves down here and on the dregs of the earth, all of that status is erased when the gifts are poured out through the Spirit. Look what it says in verse 17 and 18. It says, "'And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy.'" Is there anyone here that is not a son or a daughter? "'And your young men shall see visions, "'and your old men shall dream dreams.'" Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. The greatest class difference in the history of the earth, often the most brutal, has to be the difference between the masters and slaves. Up until the last couple of centuries, slavery has been a constant in all cultures all societies and continents, except maybe Antarctica. But now, male and female servants will prophesy just like everything else, class distinctions are erased. Now you might be asking, uh, uh, John, you've missed the, the visions and the dreams. Well, you know, we're gonna have to put that off to a different day because uh, we just don't have time to get into that. But, um, but as we go through the uh, book of Acts, visions and dreams were always used by God to provide God guidance, to say, to people like Paul, to, um, to uh, help the gospel move forward. But we're going we're gonna to zero in on prophecy. And if you're a son or a daughter, we are told, you shall prophesy. So let me ask you, are you member of Central Church, using your gift of prophecy. Well, wait a minute, you may be thinking, where are you going with this, John? Are you saying that we should all be prophets, like in the sense uh, that we receive direct revelation from God, like, say, um, Ezekiel, uh, meaning that when we speak, we should speak as authoritative as the apostles' teaching in Scripture? Uh, I give an unqualified no to that. But let me tell you how reading scripture in my devotions has sharpened my understanding of prophecy. Do you remember how Paul starts 1 Corinthians 14? He says, with this compelling command, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may, what's the word? Prophesy. So what is prophecy? Well, if you'd asked me that uh, 40 years ago, I would have said, prophecy, oh, that's when you can foretell a future that uh, gives you the ability to see history in advance. Well, sometimes that's true, but that's not what the main uh, meaning of prophecy is like, is. So uh, So I uh, did a little bit of study, and I'm quite amazed at the range of... Um, of uh, behaviors and um, ministries that prophecy uh, encompasses. Now I'm uh, I, I, one of my favorite uh, writers is a theologian called David Peterson. And David Peterson systematized and went through all of scripture and came up with a kind of an umbrella of ministries that are included in the prophecy. First of all he said that Prophecy involves inspired praise. So, when, if it, there are, it, it is possible that when you are singing and when you are worshiping God, that you can be engaging in the gift of prophecy. Now, don't get me wrong, just because you can sing or you're singing a song doesn't mean you're engaging in prophecy. We'll get to uh, the, the qualify, qualifications later. But often, prophecy involves inspired praise. Secondly, often, prophecy involves something called convincing proclamation. This is applying the scriptures to the person and work of Christ in ways that move people to repentance and faith and grow the church numerically. Thirdly, besides inspired praise, besides convincing proclamation, besides uh, convincing proclamation, is discerning debate. Prophecy often involves the ability, the power from God to argue for the truth of the gospel with a wisdom that's given by the Spirit that opponents just can't resist. And fourthly, besides inspired praise and convincing proclamation and discerning debate, prophecy can also indicate or is indicated by strengthening exhortation encouragement for believers that enables them to stand firm and persevere thus maturing the church so when we look at Peter's sermon here which is the which factors here of these 4 would best fit his prophetic outpouring during his sermon. Inspired praise, convincing proclamation, or discerning debate, or strengthening exhortation. Well, what would it be? It would be a convincing proclamation. Okay, he, he applies the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures in his sermon. He references th- three scriptures directly, all related to the person and work of Christ with the goal of leading people through the power of the Spirit to repentance and faith. But what about a passage like uh, Ephesians 5, 18? Remember what it says? It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Well, what, what does that look like? in this context, being filled with the Spirit is like speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. When we sing, just love loved the worship leading, when we sing, you're not just singing for yourself, you are singing to edify, to build up the rest of us. And, um, and, uh, Believe me, when I sing, that's a, that's a stretch for my voice to edify anybody. But that's what we're doing. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, uh, this is how we use prophecy for strengthening exhortation. So when I, was, uh, when I was about 18 and I uh, tried to learn the Bible, this is how I, I did it. it was, I, I have really, really changed my ways since then. But uh, I would say, okay, what's the meaning of prophecy? So I would uh, look up the passages that I could find on prophecy, put all of the different meanings together, and come up with one super definition. Okay, and that was my big big paragraph definition. Whenever I saw the word prophecy in the New Testament, I would go, that's what it means. It was like every, I I thought that every word had this unalterable, fixed meaning, but as I aged, I realized that that is not always the case. So, for example, if I were to yell in a crowded theater, fire! What would happen? (laughs) There would be pandemonium. But if uh, I were to um, uh, say to my wife, uh, Debbie, uh, we need to uh, set a fire in the fireplace. Same word, totally different connotation, totally different meaning. If I were to say the word fire, and we were talking about uh, a war, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyeballs, that's another meaning. If you are working and you get this nasty letter, maybe a pink slip, that's telling you that you no longer have a job, that word fire means something totally different. And this is the way that language works. And those of you that want to go into Bible study deeper and to know God in a a more intimate way, you're you're going to need to learn that context Is everything for determining the meaning of a word absolutely crucial this is just the way language works and it's the same with a word like prophecy you can you can see dozens and dozens and dozens of references to prophecy but that same word can be used in all sorts of different contexts and I learned in my in my walk with God and understanding of his word that this word prophecy covers a whole wide range of Christian mandates. And I'm going to challenge you to read the Bible and to understand how your gift of prophecy that Peter says is poured out on all flesh, part of the pouring out of the Spirit, works out. Um, uh, One of my uh, favorite speakers, Don Carson has this little uh, phrase that's kind of cool. He says, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. That's good. That's good. So in your Bible study, as you try to work out what God wants you to do in your prophetic uh, ministry, look at the context. Okay. So thirdly, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, what happens? The gospel is proclaimed with boldness and power. And we see this in spades. We see this amazingly with Peter. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. What's happened to Peter? He's proclaiming the gospel with boldness and power. What was Peter like just 50 days ago? Less than two months ago? He was spineless. You remember, kid, what happened? what happened when at the uh, trials of Jesus this uh, little servant girl comes up and starts to ask him if he's been with Jesus? What is this bro, uh, bragging uh, uh, arrogant boaster Peter do? He withers, and he denies, and he curses Christ, he is, uh, and he slinks off in shame. What's happened to him in 50 days? Two things have happened to him. The Bible tells us in, in Luke 24 that after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, what did he do? He walked with his disciples and explained scriptures to them, interpreted the scriptures to them, probably in ways that they were too obtuse to understand before he died. Peter was there. Can you imagine being given a study of the Bible from the one whose Holy Spirit inspired it, the Son of God? Can you imagine that, how the impact that would have on Peter? That's the first thing that happened to him. The second thing that happened to him is that the Spirit was poured out on him with power at Pentecost, and he, uh, he, he is unbelievable. Let's slip down to uh, verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Uh, Peter's not exactly politically correct. (laughs) He's just bold, in your face. And he comes up, he said that there's basically three Classes of people that killed, or three classes that killed Christ. Who were they? There were you, listening. A lot of them would have been part of the crowd that yelled, we have no king but Caesar. And there was the leadership. But look at this. Verse 23, But this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God was also the third party. How could this be? And in just two verses, Peter gives a powerful illustration of the doctrine of divine sovereignty, divine election, and human responsibility. Two verses. It's just like there's so much theology. And Peter didn't have time like me to sit down and think the week before what he was going to speak this was on the spot, it was extemporaneous up and suddenly he's, he's giving incredible explanations he's confronting imagine confronting a crowd of say 10,000 people and telling them this <clears throat> and then he goes right back to scripture in verse uh, 25 Psalm 16, he starts to quote scripture we, we, uh, uh, this is a huge passage A huge passage, it would take someone like Eldon probably two sermons to preach at all. it take me 20 because I'm slow. But this is a huge passage. And, and suddenly he goes back to Scripture and he uses something, I don't know whether you've heard of Davidic typologies, but he builds his arguments to show them that this Jesus is the Messiah. Just because he was crucified on a cross does not mean that he's a fraud. The Jews had a big problem with a Messiah, a conqueror, a winner, Being cursed by being on a tree. So he explains from scripture that this Jesus who they crucified is the Lord and Christ. And uh, then he ends up, he he, uh, quotes uh, three Old Testament passages, and he ends up in verse 36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. Whom you crucified. When I was uh, 18, uh, God gave me an experience that has been like a hinge experience in my life. I went on a mission trip, a bunch of other high schoolers, and uh, it was uh, it was in Colombia, and. Uh, it was in a little town called Tulu. And uh, the missionaries who were in charge of us put us, put us in this big, huge dugout canoe with, a, with an outboard motor on it. It was very narrow and very tipsy. And we went out into the Caribbean and ended up at this very fascinating island. And it was so crowded, and the people there were in uh, unbelievable poverty. And uh, they, were, they made their living fishing, and, but this island was so packed that there, there was one small little square in the middle of the, of the village. And to get from one side to the other, it was maybe, I don't know, maybe three acres in size. You had to actually walk through people's houses, and that was just normal the way they lived. So as we were coming to this island, the clouds darkened, it got uh, unbelievably stormy, and the clouds unleashed a torrential downpour. We got off, soaked in the island, started strumming our guitars, and immediately the whole island came and surrounded us in this village square. And uh, the, the missionary preached, and we gave some of our testimonies that were translated, and these people were listening to us in, intently. I'd never seen anything like it. I said, boy, this is a lot different than witnessing in Canada. And when it came time for the invitation, in unison, all of them, it must be at least 100 people, accepted the Lord just like that with this, with this loud shout. And you know what had happened? God had arranged the circumstances so that these people had had, I I forget how long it was, it was like a year, I don't know, but you can imagine what the water supply issues would be, had had a drought for a long, long time, and they had to bring in their bottles of water on boats. And when we came, as I said, it was a monsoon deluge, And and they had come to the conclusion that God had something really important to tell them because we had come with this rain. And when the the missionary spoke, his words, I know know him, his name was uh, Don Rendell. there's just something that happened to his voice. And there there was this quickening. And I just thought, I wonder if that's a little like it was with Peter. So, I want you to take, the, take walk away from with three lessons. When God pours out His Spirit, He pours out His Spirit on all flesh. Secondly, when God pours out His Spirit, believers prophesy. Develop your prophetic gift. And thirdly, when God pours out His Spirit. The preaching of the gospel is executed with boldness and power. Have you, ever, have you ever experienced that? Yeah, you know, you know, like me. I'm just this insecure little 18-year-old strumming my three chords. <laughs> Not nearly as good as her. And what am I doing? And yet, the kids that day became this vehicle of, of, of the Spirit. And take that away. And if you do, it will change your life and you will find yourself doing things that you know don't come from you. You're just not good enough. But come from the one who poured himself out with flaming tongues and the power of rushing winds. Thank you.